Hello, and welcome to the February 10th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Ironman released its latest update to its competition rules this past week, and for the most part, there were no major changes to the way triathlons are going to be run, at least for 70.3 and 140.6 events. The major changes to the rules had more to do with adding or expanding categories under which athletes can participate in WTC events in 2023. For the most part, these changes are in my mind to be applauded as they go a long way to making Ironman events more inclusive, but for transgender athletes, I'm not sure this is the case, and as always, that particular group of athletes is giving rise to far more controversy and consternation than is commensurate with the number of people involved. But let's parse all of this out. First, we have the expansion of the physically challenged division to include athletes with intellectual challenges as well. Clearly, this is in response to the success that Chris Nikich had in his participation in the sport over the past couple of years, and I think that this is a welcome addition. I would hope, however, that future athletes that enter in this division with intellectual challenges might be subjected to less publicity and exploitation than Chris was going forward. This will hopefully rapidly become normalized and less of a sideshow than it was over the last couple of years. Another change has been the addition of an open division. To quote from Ironman's own communication on this matter, this division, quote, has been created to expand inclusion opportunities and welcomes participation from any and all able-bodied athletes who wish to race in an event without a gender or age-based peer comparison, end quote. Now, I imagine this is being done in part to recognize the growing number of athletes and people in general who simply do not align with traditional binary gender or who have issues with their birth gender assignment. But it seems to also be recognizing the large and ever-growing number of athletes who come to these big events not so much to compete, but rather to complete. Athletes who participate in the Open Division are not eligible for awards, nor for World Championship slots, but they get medals like everyone else and get the minimum number of AWA points to count towards individual rankings and towards any team that they might be on in order to help with the team competitions. What isn't clear to me from the published rules or the frequently asked question on the matter, which is on the Ironman website, is whether or not the open division athletes start separately from the age group athletes or if they self-seed along with everyone else. Given that open division athletes have to abide by all of the same rules as everybody else, I guess it isn't clear to me why they would start separately, though if someone was registering for, the, for this open division, they might well wish to. Another update to the rules revolves around running shoes. You may or may not recall a minor kerfuffle at last year's Ironman World Championships in Kona that surrounded the shoes worn by Gustav Eden. The prototype shoes that he wore that day had a significant width to the sole, otherwise known as a stack, that many thought should have been illegal. Well, 
World Athletics has gone so far as to issue some guidance on running shoes and has put out a list of approved shoes for different disciplines. And the WTC rules stipulate that for shoes to be worn in one of their 70.3 or 140.6 races, they must be found on that list. Or alternatively, an athlete must apply for special dispensation lest they be disqualified if they try to race wearing a pair of shoes that's not found on that approved list. Now, the list is very long, and I couldn't find any of the commonly worn shoes that I know of in triathlon that were not on this list. And even though with and even those with the largest stack are approved for running on pavement, though most are not allowed for track events. Still, if some new shoe model comes out this spring and you are considering getting a pair for an early season race, you'd be best to check the list and then with the race director or Ironman officials and see if it's going to be okay if the race, if the pair is not on that list. And I'll include a link to the list of shoes in the show notes. Finally, The change that more people are discussing than any of the others that I have mentioned so far relates to transgender athletes. I think that it's really sad that we in triathlon can't be the beacon of acceptance and understanding and inclusion on this issue where so many other sports have chosen exclusion. But I definitely understand that this is not a straightforward topic and there are numerous viewpoints to be considered. I think with this new policy, Ironman has tried to be fair to all, but unsurprisingly, those who will face the hardest path here are the transgender athletes themselves. And this, to me, just doesn't strike me as terribly fair, given what these individuals go through in their day-to-day lives, never mind in sport. At any rate, the new policy is aimed squarely at men transitioning to women and is fairly intrusive in terms of what it requires athletes to do in order to satisfy the requirements to compete in their newly declared gender. These athletes need to show that they have not competed as a male within the last four years and have to show that their testosterone levels have been lower than a determined threshold for at least two years. There are various other requirements as well. I'm not going to get into all of them. Despite the fact that these rules are in alignment with several other sporting associations, I suspect that not everybody is going to be appeased, and transgender athletes themselves may be dismayed by the hurdles that they find themselves faced with yet again, just in order to do something that the rest of us take for granted. Now, again, I don't pretend that there's an easy solution to any of this, but I just can't help wishing that we could embrace a position of more tolerance, acceptance, and understanding as a baseline, and maybe move forward from there. To me, this really just doesn't feel like that. Well, what do you think? I'd love to know. Am I on the right track with my thoughts, or am I way off base? Either way, I hope that you'll feel comfortable sharing your opinion with me either by sending me an email or dropping a post in the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. I always love engaging with my listeners, whether you agree with me or not. On the show today, I have yet another medical segment on female reproductive physiology and its impact on training and racing. Over the years, I've made no secret of my disappointment in the fact that so many women out there have been won over by the proselytizing of a certain woman scientist with a PhD who loves to, shall we say, roar about how women should behave according to their menstrual cycles, essentially because she says that's the way it is, in the absence of any real evidence. Well, one more study can be added to the growing body of evidence that stands in direct contrast to she who would sell you books, supplements, and courses. I will once again go over the evidence on menstrual cycles and exercise performance, and that's coming up shortly. 
Later, I am joined once again by the founder and CEO of Race Ranger, James Elvery. Exactly one year ago, in episode 88, James joined me to talk about his product that he believes will revolutionize the way the bike segment of triathlons are both officiated and raced. Well, just a few weeks ago, the Race Ranger had its long-awaited and unfortunately often delayed debut at a race in New Zealand, and while not everything went exactly according to plan, enough did that everyone involved thought it was a fantastic success. And James and I talk about how it went and what comes next for this really exciting product. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, a price I might add that has not increased despite inflation, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash Podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access to these bonus segments and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. Stacey Sims is a leading voice in exercise and nutrition for women all around the world. Sims has a Master's of Science and a PhD in Exercise Physiology and Nutrition, and she has dedicated much of her career to highlighting the yawning gender gap in much of the scientific literature on sports performance, and to her credit, is responsible in part for a renaissance of sorts in the exercise science community, wherein researchers are much more careful about ensuring gender parity in study populations whenever possible, and in carefully assessing interventions and results with respect to their differing impacts on men versus women. Sims's contributions really cannot be overstated, and I think that she has done a lot to advance the cause of women in sport and of women who study sports performance. But, and you knew there was going to be a but here, I find myself wondering if maybe Dr. Stacy Sims jumped the shark at one point. I certainly don't blame Sims for being an entrepreneur, and I applaud her for being able to make a living off of the career she has had in academia and research. But at some point, Sims stopped paying attention to the evidence when it inconveniently stopped backing up what she's been saying in order to continue generating sales off of her website. You see... Stacey Sims has made it very much her whole raison d'etre to tell women that their menstrual cycle is both their strength and their Achilles heel. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, she loves to say that estrogen is an anabolic hormone and that women's periods are a sign of their superpower. In other words, a healthy hormonal cycle and that they should never tamper with that. Put differently, Birth control pills are not good, in Sims's opinion. Now, as for the Achilles heel part of this, Sims subscribes to the theory that the female reproductive cycle and the hormonal fluctuations that drive it can change how a woman is able to perform physically. She tells women that they should expect that their training will be good during the follicular or early phase of their menstrual cycle, not so good around ovulation, and potentially problematic during the luteal phase and definitely around menstruation. She goes so far as to counsel women in her various courses, books, and programs, as well as apps for her, your phone, that they should train differently based on where they are in their menstrual cycle. 
There's just one problem with all of this, and that is that the scientific evidence doesn't support any of it. Now, I have addressed this subject once before. Back in episode 50, I had an obstetrician gynecologist on the program to help us understand the reproductive cycle and to go over a lot of the evidence that was out there at the time, and it all added up to the same thing. Menstruation does not confer any kind of superpowers. The use of birth control is very much a personal decision, and women should not feel as though choosing to use this method of family planning has any impact whatsoever on their ability to perform, because put simply, it doesn't. And most importantly, the predominant researchers in the field all felt that the assertion that women perform differently at different stages of the menstrual cycle is just not supported by any good evidence whatsoever. Now, none of this has stopped Dr. Sims from proselytizing or, sell or selling. And yet, looking at her own website, you can see that among all of the research that she has done and published, and I, it is amazing, it's a fair amount to be sure, none of it is on this specific question, whether or not the menstrual cycle actually has any impact on female performance in athletics. Amazing, right? The way she talks, you would think she was a world expert based on a lot of research that she herself has done, and yet, point of fact, she has done none. Now, I myself haven't done any research projects on this subject either, and I also have nothing to sell you. But I am more than happy to review the latest paper on this subject, and it comes from Jessica James and Jason Gifford from the Department of Exercise Sciences at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. They, along with their team, published a paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology in which they compared 10 women to 10 men and looked at whether or not there was any intersex differences in exercise performance that could be attributed to the time that these women were in their menstrual phase or whether or not the use of oral contraceptives had any role. To do this, the research team put the participants through various protocols on cycle ergometers in order to determine a power duration model, maximum power output, and critical power, which was determined using a ramp test. For the women in the study, blood tests were drawn to determine hormone levels, and data was collected to determine the frequency of OCP use, all of which could be used to determine where and when women were in their menstrual cycle when they did these tests. Overall, the authors found no effect on time during cycle on any of the metrics measured, and no effects on the power duration model. Women performed the same across the time of the study as did men, independent of where they were in their menstrual cycle. The authors went on to conclude that researchers in other studies do not need to control for the menstrual cycle when doing athletics-based research because, put simply, there is no impact of that cycle on performance. The preeminent researcher on this subject is Christy McNulty, and I have referenced her before, back in episode 50. McNulty published a systematic review on this subject back in 2020, in which she synthesized the data from 78 papers on the impact of the menstrual cycle on athletic performance. And I should mention again here that despite her very vocal declarations on this subject, not one of the 78 papers within this systematic review was authored by Stacey Sims. At any rate, McNulty concluded that there is no significant impact of, this, of the menstrual cycle on female athletic performance, and that women should follow a personalized approach based on their own experiences and symptoms. 
In 2022, a different researcher by the name of McNamara published a paper in the British Medical Journal that really highlighted this conclusion of McNulty, specifically that women need to follow their own experiences and symptoms. McNamara surveyed elite athletes going to compete in the Olympic and Paralympic Games in 2020 in order to determine baseline demographics, menstrual cycle and performance experiences, and relevant performance supports. The study also collected data on the athlete's age, sport, years of experience, symptoms, use of hormonal contraceptives, perceived impact on performance and training, and preferred phase of the menstrual cycle for their Olympic and Paralympic final. In other words, what phase would the individual athlete want to be in when they had their final? What McNamara found was that 42% of the athlete respondents were cycling normally, and 58% were taking oral contraceptives. Athletes were asked, if you could choose any time in your cycle to race or compete in your targeted Olympic or Paralympic final, when would it be? And the most desirable time to compete was just after their period. 42% of athletes said that. The most common reasons for using oral contraceptives were for primary contraception, for timing or predictability of periods, for symptom control, those who had pain or heavy menstrual bleeding, and for some, interestingly, about a quarter said for performance reasons. In other words, women didn't necessarily feel that the phase of their cycle had a really major impact on their performance, but that the symptoms associated with menstruation most definitely could. And given the ability to control their menstruation, be it for timing or reducing those symptoms by using oral contraceptive pills, more than half did. Now, intuitively, this makes a ton of sense to me. If you could avoid dealing with the symptoms of menstruation, especially if you have had experiences where you found that those symptoms were disruptive to your performance in the past, then why in the world wouldn't you? And again, this is why I take issue with people who would tell women that they are wrong for making this very personal decision. Well, I, for one, am going to do no such thing, not only because the evidence back up any such advice, but because I have nothing to gain by saying that. So, to my female listeners, I urge you, do what feels right for you and what is best for your personal situation. And don't for one second buy into the hype that you are a slave to your menstrual cycle or that you need to buy any product or supplement or whatever just because you're a woman. Nope, you can be the decider of what's right for you, and no one's roar, no matter how loud, should convince you otherwise. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Alternatively, you can drop it in the private Facebook group for this podcast at the TriDoc Podcast. Just do a search for that on Facebook and you'll find it. Answer a couple of easy questions and I'll grant you admittance. You can drop your question there or join the conversation about other things that we've discussed on this podcast. I hope to hear from you. My guest on the program today first joined me back on episode 86 when we talked about his new company and potentially game-changing technology that he was developing for triathlon, the Race Ranger. I'm excited to say that there have been a lot of really cool developments with the Race Ranger, and so I asked James Alvary, the former ITU professional and now founder and CEO of the company, if he'd come back to fill us in on everything that's happened, and he's graciously agreed. Just to briefly remind everyone, James lives in Wanaka, New Zealand, and had his ITU career from 2002 to 2002. 
2012 with a world ranking that got into the 20s or 30s. When he retired, he worked at Specialized, but began to develop what he thought then was a practical, real-world solution to one of the continuing problems in triathlon, that being drafting on the bike. And the fruits of his labors is the Race Ranger, an electronic system that lets riders know when they are in the draft zone and allows officials to keep tabs on who is drafting most egregiously. James, welcome back to the TriDoc Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. James, remind us, if you would, you did so much better than I did on the last time that we talked. Just remind us what the Race Ranger is, how it works, and where you are now with its development. Sure. So where we are right now is probably the best place to start because that's we've built the, uh, the minimum functionality that we have to put out there to start with. So what we have now is a system that goes on everyone's bikes. There's one on the front fork and one on the rear seat tube or seat post. And the rear device has three colored lights on it. And they're pointing backwards, obviously, to the rider behind. So as a following rider looking ahead, you're looking at those lights on the back of the bike in front of you. Now, as you get closer and closer to the rider in front, you'll be given three different light light signals, three colors. And they change, obviously, depending on how close you And so we've, we've basically built these three colors around a couple of zones. So there's the in the draft zone. And this obviously varies depending on the event you're doing. Most events these days are sort of 12 meters the odd one's still 10 meters, and then some of these pro events are now going out to 20 meters. And so if you're in whatever the, the uh, rule is for that race, we set it for that distance. So if you're within that draft zone, let's say 12 meters, you'll see a blue light. We then have a one and a half meter buffer zone where we have a red light. So this sort of gives you a last warning that you're about to get into the draft zone. And then beyond that, a two and a half meter yellowy orange zone. Our light was meant to be yellow and it's come out a bit orange, but yeah, we'll call it orange. And that sort of gives you yeah, another two and a half meters. And so effectively, if you approach someone orange that says, okay, I'm getting closer and closer, I'll either continue straight past or I'll slow down my approach. When you hit the red, that's generally when we've seen riders start to go, okay, I'll hit the brakes now. Okay, this is where I want to sit for the rest of the day. And they dance in and out of that orange to red threshold at a meter and a half beyond the draft zone. And then if, if you could progress forward to want to make a pass, you'll see when it goes blue and that's when you've got to start making a pass. And that's Basically, all the system does at the moment, it's, it's the co- complicated part of getting it to do that. So handling overtakes and riders and riders going the other direction, that sort of thing. So that's where we're at. And then I guess the next sort of features we want to add are, are sort of two together. So live tracking of the athletes. So with the information they're already sending between each other, we can use that to determine their location on the course. And we can, without too much of a stretch, get a moving dot around the course, improvement on the track around the race, and also get that information off the bikes about who's been drafting and more than there should be to the referees. So getting it off the bikes is the next step. So in two ways. So tell me what, now you, you, the big news really that came out of this was because you had a real live test case scenario at a race recently, a fairly large race in New Zealand. I believe it's the Taranga. I'm not going to pronounce it. So why don't you tell me what it was? Yeah. So as the, correct pronunciation yeah so it's a very long-standing race about 33 34 year old race in new zealand a half distance independent race so it's not nine man not a challenge or anything like that it's a an event company that puts on their own branded race and yeah it, we just the timing was right for us we've been trying to get to a race for a very long time we've had a lot of false starts where we had they thought we had it right and it just wasn't anywhere near good enough to take to a race last year we had a few races lined up that the world triathlon and pto Together, we're going to support us to go to a trial to see how it all worked and help us get through the trial phases. But 
along came the New Zealand summer and finally we were ready here. So made a lot of sense to do it at home soil and really cool to do it the first race of the season as well. well first race of the calendar year, big race here in New Zealand. Yeah, so we had it on the 20 professionals in the race. That was the whole pro field. It was five men, 15 women. Sorry, other way around. 15 men, five women. And yeah, the feedback was great. We prefaced it by saying, look, it's not quite ready because to be honest, in the week leading up to the trial, we weren't particularly ready. We were still seeing some bugs that we weren't too happy with, but we just decided let's go ahead and do a trial. We've had so many missed deadlines and we just need to get it out in the world because we'd announced it back when I came last on 14 months ago, back in 2021, November 21. So just wanted to get it out there. But literally the day before we went to the race, we finally got it to give us some pretty good performance that we're happy to put out there. Feedback was yeah, and the feedback, really the feedback, yeah, the feedback I've seen, Braden Curry was there and the feedback from him. And I even know one of the elite, I think he might be a new pro by the name of Mike Tong is a cupcake mm. cartel member. And he was racing in that field and he had good things to say about it as well. So if I'm to understand correctly, this was just for feedback to the riders. This was not giving information to the officials. Is that correct? Yeah. So it wasn't connected in a remote way to the referees, but both the athletes and the referees can see those lights. They're quite visible from feet, 300 feet or so away, 100 meters. So they're quite visible along the a long way. And whatever the athlete can see, the referee can see. It just takes out that, I guess, that argument of what is the distance? Am I 10 meters, 12 meters, 14 meters, clear as day? You're in the red zone. You're totally safe as you ride along. And you mentioned that you've had a lot of bugs and things coming up, but what has been some of the frustrations that you've had with the devices that are that have been harder to work out? It's been a long R&D and technical challenge. It's, it's a very complicated little device, unfortunately. It's not simply a bike light in a couple of senses. There's a lot of things going on there, and they all have to talk to each other in the right way. And a big part of it is the timings of signals. So to be able to effectively work things have to happen at hundreds of a second increments and they can't overlap and they can't do sending and receiving at the same time so it's all beautifully synchronized off the clocks in the sky the gps satellite clocks which give you an atomic time prints that all the clocks are reset to every second and off that a device now i need to send this message in this split second and i can't send it another 0.4 hundredths of a second later otherwise i'll overlap with this one and it's all a lot of that stuff where you think it should work and then maybe the allowance for those times wasn't quite big enough and they overlapped and they crashed and yeah it's taken a lot of trial and error to get it to just work which is it's been a big challenge but pretty enjoyable along the way as well I learned a lot <laughs> it's a it's really interesting, right? Because the idea, as you've expressed it to me a couple of times, just seems so eloquent and so easy. And yet, once you get into it and once you try to get these little devices to work, there are so many little steps that just didn't seem like they would have to be there. And yet, of course, in order to go from the idea to the actual execution, they're all in the way. And then it's just a matter of sorting them out. What else did you learn from the test case? Yes, so we actually, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. So we took, interviewed all the athletes straight after the race and asked them, how did it go? And Generally, their first feedback was really positive, and then we drilled in and said, is there anything that didn't quite work right or that you'd like to change? And I'd say a third of the field did have times when it wasn't perfect for them. It did the wrong thing at some point over their 90-kilometer ride. The other two-thirds, 100% of the time, it was perfect. And so there were two bugs that we're working on now. One was when riders are heading on one side of the road and others are on the other side of the road, so two different directions of travel. And we had a case where three girls were following each other and are using the lights as their guide. And they were sitting in that red to orange zone. Um, and a male pro went in the other direction on the highway and it caused their lights to go blue. 
was their, what they saw. So just for a split second and then it went back. We thought we'd had the system discarding things going the opposite direction quite early on. I just have just got, had my guy had a week off, my software engineer, he's had a week off and he's just come back and within two days he's got a plausible explanation for what's going on there, digging into the massive system diagrams that we have. So pretty sure we're on to how to iron that one out. Another one was another sort of challenge I guess we can describe as well. The, if the athletes start together on the ride, it's quite hard for us to establish order, who's in front of who. If they start a long way apart and one approaches the other from a distance, we can pretty nicely know that the one approaching from a distance is behind and the one in front is leading. But if they start together, there's a moment there where it has to work out who's in front of who. And we've got a couple of ways to work out that how that works. And one of them was thrown together the night before and it seems to not quite have done what it needed to do. Pretty sure that will explain these cases of them going off for a couple of minutes, doing what they should do is they considered at that time the order to be incorrect or they couldn't establish that order because this one little piece of code needs to be fixed and finished off. Yeah, pretty happy. Like you, when you go to race, it's like anything, you find things that you learn and, and can improve, little things that are important. And the athletes, a few of them forgot what the lights meant during the race or after the race, we spoke to them and they thought that the orange was actually drafting and, that kind of thing, and a couple of referees as well. So we've made some stickers to go on the top tube with the traffic light and the distances, which both the athletes and the referees can have during the race as a guide. Yeah, and we learned a lot about how to put them on the bikes and our back end as well around what it takes to program them all pre-race back at the hotel and make sure they're all fully charged and streamline a few things in that back end. Was battery life an issue at all? No, so we've got quite large batteries in there that recently haven't done a full run test, but they should last up to 10 hours of full use. So we're aiming at Ironman use as well, so they've got to be out there for quite a long time. But no, we've it's they basically ran down about, yeah, 15% over the two to three hour ride. So we're pretty happy with that. And the lights, there's no light on if there's no rider around you. So basically they're not using nearly as much energy, I'm guessing, when there's nobody Correct. around. And when you're, um, when you're in the transition area, they're also, we don't want a big disco going on there. So they know they're in the nah. transition and they're on and looking at each other, but they don't show any lights until they get a distance away from the transition. Is that based on GPS? That part is, yeah. Yeah, it's just okay. in, the, in the GPS yeah. the transition. And how did you decide on those colors? Because they're not intuitive to me either. It was blue just because you get a blue card if you draft? Is um, that where that came from? Partly, yeah. So straight traffic light, a green, red, and orange. Unfortunately, by blindness, people couldn't see the difference between red and green, a lot of people. So we chose to avoid green because red is a brake light. It's, it makes sense for it to be on the back of a bike. And we're not we're definitely not stuck on these colours. They could be changed in the future. The blue is quite a piercing colour. When you see it, it's a very bright. It's very striking. And it, for me, it makes me think of the police in terms of, oh, blue lights, that's illegal. And then the it was supposed to be yellow to provide enough difference from the red to the yellow. So we'd have a, a clear distinction. The orange is still quite different, but one of the athletes did comment that they are quite colourblind and the orange and the yellow look a little bit Similar to, sorry, the orange and the red looked a bit similar to them. So that's some really good feedback, that kind of thing. And I imagine flashing lights would be too distracting? Yeah, we initially had them flashing in a few different patterns and things. We might still end up with a pulsing, a gentle pulsing, just to, because if you're able to reduce the amount of time it's just on full brightness, it obviously saves your battery a lot more. But we found that when you're following and you're dipping in and out of a threshold, having a time when it's actually off in between the flashes um, just gives you a sense that it's not as accurate as it could be if it was that solid color change as you encroach and then drop back. You want to you want to believe and see that it's 
it is doing what you expect it to do. And as you drop back, it quickly flicks to the different colour. And if there's even third of a second gaps in between the flashes, it makes it feel a bit less crisp in terms of the those threshold changes. Yeah, that's one of those things where you wonder if the enemy of good is perfect, right? Or you're trying to be so fine that you're not putting in things that could actually enhance the product because you're trying to be detail-oriented. Did, did you, like, I, I get the sense that the pros gravitating to that orange color is that the way they normally race? Do they try to set up a sort of set distance between each other and just stay at that distance and then the lights basically just made it easier for them? Yeah, so how I guess it currently works is they all just guesstimate what they feel the correct distance is and then add a little buffer to that and they hope that the referee agrees when the referee comes along and some events the referee will come along and say, yep, looks good. Other events they will come and tell you just back it off a bit. I think you're too close. Other events that was coming give you a card. What this did was just took that all out of it. It was okay. I know if I'm not in the blue, there's no need to worry about the referee giving me a penalty. And also for the referee, they just can follow from a wee ways back and see, oh, there's orange and red lights there, no blue, so there's no no drafting going on. What we did find from basically everyone was that their perception of what the draft distance is was a lot different from reality. So they were all able to ride a lot closer than they thought was legal when you're standing still and you know that 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 setup is often shown to you at a transition area of one bike and then a tape measure and the other bike when you're standing still it's quite easy to judge what that is and replicate that instant standing still conditions but when you're zooming along in the race every your perception of distance changes it's like in the car if you're following a car at 50 kilometers an hour it's quite you'll naturally feel quite comfortable at a close distance but if you're following it 150 kilometers an hour you'll naturally have a much bigger gap but you'll still feel quite close so there's a bit of a strange effect going on there to the point where early in the race so out we had a 10 meter draft distance for Tauranga of the race and so that meant our first light came on at 14 meters so the first buffer zone was 14 meters out four meters beyond the draft zone and early in the race before the athletes kind of two of these athletes got close enough together we were falling along behind no lights were on and a referee came alongside and just said oh hey just drop it back a little bit so they actually were beyond 14 metres, but the referee thought they were at or closer than the 10. So it just shows you how out we've all been for so long. And the athletes are commenting, I've been getting penalties for being that close for years. It's that kind of thing. So it just highlighted that the draft distance probably needs to be in- increased for most athletes, particularly for the pros. But that's a, not really a discussion for us to have. That's a world triathlon and, and the event companies that, that's, that use world triathlon's rules to, I guess, work work on that but hopefully they can use race ranger as a tool to those changes in the next couple of years okay so speaking of world triathlon and race ranger what's coming up do you have plans to introduce this into races in oceania in the next year or so yeah so actually looking to head to europe this year so we'll have two more trial races at home in new zealand there's a race in my hometown in wanaka challenge wanaka it's a you know, pretty famous beautiful race around the world that's in two and a half weeks mid-february Following that, we're just talking with Ironman about using Ironman New Zealand at Taupo, Taupo as our third trial. And yeah, working with Jimmy Riccatello, the Ironman referee, on making that happen. Hopefully, we'll be there as well. And following that, that's the end of our season here. And I will then make another 80 sets of these things. I've got all the parts ready to go. I've got 40 sets at the moment. And we've held off making that next 80 just to make sure everything's as we want it and didn't need to change any components or anything. And then I'll have 120. I'll be heading over to ideally Europe and doing as many 
pro races as we can for the season, just a pro pilot season to get to get a good understanding of how to roll it out, how to travel between events and scale it up from there. But yeah, with World Triathlon, like the association there is a bit confusing for some people because they don't hold a lot of non-drafting events. Their big thing is you know, the Olympic Games and the draft legal World Triathlon Series. I guess it stemmed from us contacting them in 2018 and they're known, I get, they're obviously the world governing body. So they they have the rule set, the competition rules that are used by the majority of events. And most national federations use their rules with some variations, but there's a, a effort to streamline that globally, albeit the differences we currently have with the draft distances. So yeah, it made sense for us to work with them in developing it. They want to stay abreast of any new technology coming into the sport and how it might affect the sport and not be seen to be behind and not understanding it. And they've been really supportive along the way. They can see the, the benefit to the athlete experience and if they're charged with growing the sport. And if we make it more enjoyable for athletes to race and to, to enjoy their experience on a day, then that's hopefully going to grow the sport in the long term and less people will drop out, more people will come in, be a bit more fun to visual, you won't get abused so much, that sort of thing. Yeah, but Challenge Wanaka and Ironman in New Zealand, so both for pro fields only still. What do you think is the timeline for introducing this for age groupers? Clearly, you'd have to have a huge scale up in terms of the amount of product you could make and obviously the software and everything else. I'm just curious, what do you think realistically is the possibility to get this scaled up to age groupers? Yeah, I am on track, I believe, for 2024 from the Northern Hemisphere season, possibly for age groupers. It all really depends on the buy-in of those big events. So Ironman Challenge, the other big sort of independent events, need to see that there's something people want, and we need to figure out exactly the model there with them. If we put it on every single athlete, that might not be that useful for everyone. A slightly different demographic in Europe from North America, I believe, as well. In Europe, you have a lot higher percentage of the field are regular triathletes, and then there's some sort of just turn up to do get the Ironman tattoo. Whereas it seems in the US and in North America, the, the percentage of that number is higher. And so those athletes probably don't really care about this drafting technology. They're just there to do their Ironman, tick it off and sit up on their hoods most of the day and uh, chat to chat to the other competitors around them as they go around, but get to the finish line. That's their big thing. And once they've done it, they don't come back. Whereas you've got your more competitive age groupers, probably listening groups that listen to this podcast and others and uh, who are really competitive and want to get a good place in their age group, want to qualify for the world championships, almost said Kona there wherever it is and and that group probably are quite interested in what we've got finding a way to either segment the field where that elite age group are in that do want to qualify and do want a good place in their age group could could pay for the system a little bit more then maybe they get some sort of vip access to transition or some other benefits of having this elite entry and then the rest of the field is just run as it is at the moment it's not really that heavily policed for drafting it's a almost a grand fondo they probably don't want to cheapen the ironman brand too much but they're not too worried about what we're doing with this elite thing. Challenge becomes you when you get mixing of those people on the course because it's quite, it's quite hard to separate them completely and they're going to still race on the same day. So we need to work through the details, but yeah, the plan is to be able to put it on large fields and scale it up from yeah, next I year. I think that's people. interesting. I think that's interesting and I can envision a world where the people who pay to be part of the elite group, if you will, the people who are competitive, maybe because right now Ironman has the mixed start where people self-seed. And what in it, what inevitably ends up happening is people who are just there to try and make it, they want to give themselves more time in the swim. They put themselves towards the front. And there's always this kind of back and forth of, I, I dare say, animosity between people who can swim well, who get irritated with people who are putting themselves up front who really shouldn't be there. And you would separate that out if you had this group of people who are saying, okay, I, I'm here to compete. I will pay extra for my race 
ranger. And also we're going to start self-seated maybe ahead. And then everybody else who's there to complete, they won't pay the extra for the race ranger. Maybe they are not eligible for world championship slots. They get everything else the same. And then they maybe start self-seated after the elite groups go. I don't know. I can envision such a thing happening. I think Iron Man has always been a little bit reticent to do that because they want to treat everybody equally. But we'll see. That might be something that could come to pass. I'd be interested. One of the things you mentioned to me after the race in New Zealand that I thought to myself could be logistically an issue is the fact that you had to drive back from the race because you had all those batteries and those batteries are not allowed on aircraft. So how do you envision the logistics of moving these batteries around? I imagine you'd have to have these devices obviously would have to be centrally located in different areas so that they could be shipped by ground from race to race. How how would that work? So for this first race, I, I just thought driving would be the easiest way. And I, of course, got that wrong and my car broke down on the way home. <laughs> but you can fly with batteries and devices. It's just you need to get clearance first and have all this sort of paperwork done. And you can air freight them. I plan to air freight them to Europe in April when I head over. And you just need to yeah, work with the right export agencies and, and get all the paperwork done and get a duty to clear their value and all that sort of thing. But definitely easiest to fly without and to not have to fly with them. So that's why I think just basing myself in Europe will be the best place to go to start with. They've got, particularly this season, most of the braces seem to be there. There's, I think, two major PTO events outside of Europe this year in, in Singapore and, and Milwaukee. I think those are the two races. And other than that, everything seems to be in Europe and obviously Kona for the women. So you've got the 70.3 world champs. Yeah, a range of good events in Europe. So basically be ground-based. I'll be getting a van and uh, traveling from event to event. It probably won't be every single weekend, but that's the plan. And uh, bring my family over for a few weeks so I don't, miss them too much yeah got it all worked out what goes in the van how many k's i need to drive and all the costs and everything so that's fine and i guess that gets to something else i hate to ask on the business side of things but this is obviously a point in time where you're draining cash as opposed to raising it. Clearly, in order to be profitable, this has to be scaled up quickly. So where is your cash coming from at this point? Do you have investors that are helping out? Because this is a private company, as far as I know. How do you envision recouping the investment and then becoming profitable? Sure. So to date, like we've been at this for quite a number of years, as you might, I may have mentioned in the last podcast. And uh, yeah, initially it was our own money putting in. It wasn't huge amounts, but little bits and pieces as we could afford it between Dylan and myself, my co-founder. Then we started getting New Zealand government grants. So they encourage research and development and new technology. Um, that enabled us to hire a graduate student straight out of university and covered their salary for six months. And that really got us started and he ended up becoming a full-time employee and he's still with us two and a half years later. And then there's another sort of project grant, which it's called as we're currently working on a yeah, two to three year R&D project, which is to get it basically working. And we recover 40% of the costs of all our R&D you know, through the government for that. Last, or when was it? 2021. So just before we announced what we we're doing, and we raised our first outside capital equity. Yeah, we sold shares basically in the company to angel investors. So they're people who have done well in business and want to support and follow and invest in startup businesses like ours. And group about 30 people come together with one nominee company and they basically invested in the company and then a couple of other individuals and they topped us up a little bit last year and we'll soon be going out for another sort of round of fundraising this year. Yeah, so if there's any, I guess, qualified investors keen to see what we're up to, be very happy to chat. But yeah, it's been 
outside investors now, but this year going to these pro events, not these first trials. Once we're through that, I'll be taking bookings for the season. I've already got got a few lined up, which I won't say who they are yet, but they'll be paying us to go and they'll be generating some revenue that way, which will cover my costs over in Europe. The ongoing development of those other features, the live tracking and the connection to the referees will still be going on in the background in New Zealand. And that's why we need their ongoing investment to keep funding that, that sort of sort of filling out the product to the point where it's ready to manufacture. That's great, James. James, it's been really exciting to watch and be able to know you and get in early and find out more about Race Ranger and to see this really successful launch at this test event. And I'm really excited to see further test events coming up. You said Challenge Wanaka is coming up when? It's the 18th of February. 18th of February. Okay. I'll be watching to see how that goes. And maybe we'll touch back, touch base with you again, just by email afterwards, just to see how that went. And uh, very excited to see if this comes to uh, the Ironman circuit. I will, for one, be volunteering to help out uh, any driving you need in Europe or anything like that. Just <laughs> let me know. <laughs> James Elvery from Race Ranger, uh, joining us from uh, Wanaka, New Zealand. Thank you so much again for taking some time to bring us up to date on what's going on with Race Ranger. It's a really exciting technology and I am I'm very eager to see its continued development and look forward to finding it in my own races sometime in the future. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.